When I began this series a, a couple of weeks ago, I said that I, I longed for you to be confident in your Bibles and that I longed for you to be captivated by your Bibles. And I shared with you some of John Piper's thoughts, and I'd like to refer to them again this morning. The Bible has not been for me like a masterpiece hanging on the wall of an alpine chalet, but rather like a window in the wall of the chalet with the Alps on the other side. I've stood in front of this window all these years, not to protect it from being broken or because the owner of the chalet told me to, but because of the glory of the Alps on the other side, I am a captive of the glory of God revealed in Scripture. That is from his very good work, A Peculiar Glory, which I recommend to you. I re-quote it. I go back to this because I want to expand on it a little bit today. I'll refer to it a couple of times. But it captures this truth that there is a wonder to this sacred book. That is to say that the Bible's beauty, its excellency, its power, its unity and harmony, not only testify to it as divine, but that these divine qualities transport the believer with wonder. It is a book of glory. No text in the scriptures expresses this wonder like Psalm 19. Go to Psalm 19. C.S. Lewis wrote of Psalm 19, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Psalm 19 is a psalm about how God has revealed himself in the world. God's self-revelation. And the reason this is so important is that we, as human beings, we as creatures, are dependent on God to reveal himself if we are to know him, if we are to approach him, if we are to please him. God must reveal to us how to do that. Psalm 19 then displays God's glory, but not only does it display his glory, but it explains how God's glory can be known. To use John Piper's illustration, Psalm 19 not only shows us the Alps, but it also explains why this window is the only place to see those Alps in their full glory. Psalm 19, beginning in verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours, for, uh, pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. 
The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This marvelous psalm shows us that God has revealed himself. He has put himself on display. He has made himself known to us. God has revealed himself first in the glory of the Son, in the glory of the Son. David opens his song by celebrating the heavens, by celebrating the skies. They are God's handiwork, which is a way of saying that God has crafted them. God has designed them. There is beauty and power, but there is also order and design in them. And notice the stacking up of these words. Declare, proclaims, speech, reveals, words, voice. The heavens, the skies are communicating something. They are saying something. And what are the beauty and the order of the heavens saying? They are shouting the glory of God. They are clear and they are loud. And they do not stop. They do this ongoing, day to day, night to night. So whether it's the sun in blue skies or whether it's dark clouds with rain or it's the moon and the stars or Venus sitting low on the horizon or comets shooting by, they are constantly displaying beauty and design. They are constantly pointing to a creator who has crafted them. And they shout the glory of God in every language. Notice that here. They transcend all of our cultural differences. They transcend all language barriers, no matter where you are on the earth. What they reveal is universal and it is inescapable. Their words go to the end of the earth. Their voice is heard all the way to the extent of the planet. And so the beauty and the design of the heavens are clear, they are loud, they are ongoing, and they are inescapable. God exists, God is powerful, and God is glorious. Romans chapter one, the apostle Paul points out that creation's testimony is one reason that the human race is accountable to worship God and to seek him. Verse 19 of Romans chapter one, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived 
ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And Paul goes on to explain that despite the fact that God has very clearly communicated in creation his power, his glory, his, his divine nature, that mankind turns a blind eye, a willful blind eye to it and chooses his own path and instead takes the creation and turns it into his own gods and worships these different elements, the sun and the moon and the stars and etc. And mankind, because of that, is held accountable. Paul had Psalm 19 maybe in mind when he wrote chapter one of the book of Romans. However, believe it or not, the heavens aren't really the main attraction here. If you look at verse four, there's a jump, and it's unfortunate in our verses that they don't show this. The middle of verse four really should be the beginning of verse five. In them he has set a tent for the sun. In the heavens, God has framed a tent or a pavilion. And probably what David is saying is that the heavens themselves, the skies, are a tent. They are a pavilion for the sun. It is the sun that David really wants us to see. This is why he speaks of the sun as a person. The sun is like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. Now, in our day and in our culture, who gets all of the fanfare at a wedding? It's the bride. Guys, those of you who are married or have been married, you know we go rent a tux for 100 bucks, 125 bucks. The bride goes and shops for days and weeks and months to find the perfect dress and spends lots of money, I've never asked, <laughs> on this dress and in the wedding ceremony itself, for whom do we stand? The bride. We all turn. The father walks the bride down. The music plays. In ancient days, in the days of David, the psalm writer, it was not the bride who received all the fanfare. It was the bridegroom. The groom was taking for himself a bride. Now, no doubt the bride got herself ready and prepared and prettied up, decorated for a wedding. But in terms of the ceremony, the glory belonged to the bridegroom, and he would step forth from his chamber and it is the bridegroom who would be celebrated. It is the bridegroom who would be in the spotlight, especially if he's the king like David is. He would have been a royal bridegroom. So this bridegroom leaving his chamber is where all the, the trumpets start playing and then the people stand and they start throwing confetti. So like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, up comes the sun over the eastern horizon. He is like a strong man or a champion. The Hebrew word here is gibor, a mighty man, a man of valor. He's a strong man. He's a champion who runs its course with joy. So the son here is like an athlete who loves to compete and who rejoices to do what he's designed to do, which is run his course. And so the son is really 
the star of the show. He is the main attraction. The heavens and the skies are just a stage. They are the stage. He is the main actor, center stage. And all of their beauty, all of their design, they exist so that we will see the sun. The sun, then, is the center, watch, it is the center of the heaven's glory. If the heavens declare the glory of God, the sun radiates that glory in a special and powerful way. And, verse 6, in the same way the heavens' declaration is inescapable, the sun's heat is inescapable. Remember, there is, no, there is no voice, there is no language, there are no words where their voice does not go out. It extends to the end of the earth. Well, for the sun, there is nothing hidden from its heat. Nothing. The sun is all pervasive. So first, God reveals himself in the glory of the sun. Secondly, God reveals himself in the glory of his word. In the glory of his word. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. Now let's stop for a second because we have another jump here in the psalm, another transition. And it's a jump between verse 6 and 7, just like there was a jump in the middle of verse 4. Only this transition's really abrupt. In fact, it's so abrupt that some scholars suggest that verses 1 through 6 and verses 7 through 11 were two different psalms. They were two different poems that were just kind of spliced together and formed into one work. But it's not that hard to see what David's doing in the poem, is it? Because the jump from verse 6 to 7 is the same jump he makes from the heavens to the sun. Just as the heavens, watch, just as the heavens have been beautifully crafted and designed to be a stage for the glory of the sun, so the sun and the heavens and all of creation have been beautifully crafted as a stage for what? The word, the law. So the key to understanding the psalm is in the structure it's how David has written these different stanzas. The word is the center. The word of the Lord is the center of God's revealed glory. If the creation declares the glory of God, the word reveals that glory in a special and powerful way. How so? The beauty of the heavens, the brilliance of the sun, the power of the oceans, the grandeur of the mountains, they may shout glory, they may shout divine nature, they may shout eternal power, but the written word explains his person. It reveals his will for us. It provides for us his wisdom. It grants to us his compassion. Creation screams his glory, but scripture makes him knowable. Creation means rule, that God rules and reigns. Scripture means we can know him and have a relationship with him. 
And notice how David changes from God to the Lord. God is the, the name Ale. And we use that word in many of our names for God, El Shaddai, or El Jireh. And it means power, it means might, it means sovereignty. El is the one who created the earth and the heavens in Genesis chapter 1. He is God. But suddenly in verse 7, the law of the Lord, and he goes on to name the Lord seven times here. The Lord is the name Yahweh. And you'll notice in our English Bibles, it's in all capitals. It's because it is this covenant name, the covenant name of God. So David, even in talking about God, moves from God, the sovereign creator of all that we see and know, to the Lord, who is the covenant-keeping God who forms a relationship with people according to promise. Now, I say it is the written word because these six terms in verses 7 through 11 all refer to written scripture. Law, testimony in verse 7. Precepts and commandment in verse 8. Even the word fear, which we'll talk about in a second, fear and rules in verse 9. These are all talking about written scripture. There is some slight variation in these terms. For example, testimony emphasizes covenant, where the term precepts talks about appointed service, but they each describe the same written text. And for David, the author of this psalm, this is the Pentateuch. This is Torah. The first five books in our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's what David is looking at. Now think about when you've tried to read through the book of Leviticus, okay? Even Numbers at times. Exodus, Deuteronomy repeats a lot of stuff in Exodus. David looks at those five books and he sees in them glory. He sees in them wonder. But it extends to all biblical revelation, which is why I'm summarizing it as the word, the word of the Lord. And so David uses, uses them here to feature six facets of glory in the word and the effects they have. This is really the heart of the psalm here. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It's perfect. That means that God's word has flawless integrity. It never misleads, it never misrepresents. It is sound, it is genuine. In reviving the soul, it means that it restores life. So matter, uh, no matter where someone is spiritually, no matter where someone is morally, no matter how far someone has strayed or why they have strayed, the word tells us how to be restored into a right relationship with God. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The word testimony could be the word, uh, translated the word covenant. It is sure. It is unwavering. It is unchanging. Unlike so many other things in our lives, it is 
entirely reliable. That is, it doesn't fluctuate because our ideas of right and wrong change. It doesn't waver with our culture's values. The testimony of the Lord is sure, and so it is a sure guide for the simple. The word simple is talking to the the naive, often the young, someone without knowledge. The simple person is someone who is prone to wander off the path of life and blessing, really is a term that captures sheep. Sheep are simple. And in that sense, all of us are simple. All of us are vulnerable to just wandering off the path. But the Lord's sure testimony makes them wise. It provides us with skill to live with discipline, to live productive lives, to live life staying in the path. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Right or upright, meaning they they are direct. They are clear. They make sense of life and relationships. If we live life and live life with other people according to the Lord's precepts, his precepts give us insight into understanding how to live, how to, how to relate to people, how to love people, how to respond to people. And as a result, they bring joy. They bring joy to the heart, happiness, instead of confusion and despair. So the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Now, the commandment speaks of all of the Lord's commandments and all of his promises. It takes all of them together and presents them as a covenant system, as something binding on God's people. They are the commandment of the Lord, and the commandment of the Lord is pure, it's unpolluted, it is without corruption, there is nothing false in it. And so the word of God enlightens the eyes. Now these are the eyes of the heart, this is a metaphor, and it means that the word of God, the commandment of the Lord, because it's pure, gives understanding. It gives insight. It illuminates what is best and right. The commandment of the Lord is not seen as something that's just laid upon the people of God so that they have to bear up under the burden of this commandment and keep all the rules and check off all the boxes and jump through all the right hoops. No, the commandment of the Lord is this body of knowledge and revelation that illuminates the path for us and gives us understanding. It helps us to see where the snares and the pits in life are, where falsehood and temptation would ensnare us. It's the commandment of the Lord, it's pure. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Now, for David to suddenly refer to the law or the word of God as fear is is a poetic device. This is part of the poetry of the psalm. It is the effect of the revelation. It is the effect of the law standing in the place of what has caused it. So the scriptures cause awe. They cause fear. 
And that fear then is clean. It's clean, meaning that this reverent fear of God, because of who he reveals himself to be, makes somebody ready for God's presence. This word clean and its opposite, unclean, were words that were used to talk about ceremonial cleanness or uncleanness. A priest could not serve the Lord. He could not mediate between the people and God if he was unclean. Someone who was unclean because they had touched a dead body or because they had eaten the wrong kind of food or whatever it was could not come into the temple and offer sacrifices. There were, always, there were all these regulations of cleanness. The fear of the Lord is clean, talking about this effect. The, the scriptures make us clean. It reminds me of Jesus's prayer in John chapter 17, where he is praying for us as his future disciples. And he says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Your word will sanctify them and set them apart. That's what David's talking about here. This fear of the Lord, this awe and reverence that is what makes us clean. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Scriptures make the heart clean for worshiping the Lord, and they do this over and over. The fear of the Lord endures forever. Lastly, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The word rules here is not talking about what we think of as rules. We have a rule against this. We have a rule against that. These rules are ruling judgments. It's talking about decisions that are handed down or that are made from God's throne. The rules of the Lord, the rulings, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The Lord's judgments are always true. They are always righteous. They never err. He never overreacts, and he is never suckered in. He's never deceived. His judgments always get to the bottom of a matter. Now, as a parent, presented with differing stories from my children at times, he said this, she did that. I wish I could get to the bottom of the matter a lot of times. That's what David is saying about God, though. As God sits on his judgment, throne of judgment, not just dispensing punishment, but here as a judge over right and wrong, vindicating and condemning, that God looks at humanity and he rules, he rules judgments, and he always gets to the bottom of the matter. He always understands and knows what is going on in us and with us. His judgments always are right and true. And so David concludes in verse 10 that Scripture's words are more valuable than gold, than even much fine gold. David is saying that the words of Scripture are more valuable than the most precious metal on earth. There should be a desire to know and understand them like gold lust drives people. 
They are more to be desired, hungered after, read, studied, treasured. And they are sweeter than honey. What does he mean by this? Well, remember, they didn't have refined sugar. They didn't even have raw sugar in Palestine. That they probably did. At these, these days, they didn't even have sugar cane. Their source of sweetness was honey. That's why if you read your Old Testament, all the stories and narratives in there, and you ever come across where they find a beehive and honey, you're thinking, why did they go for the, those bees and hornets? They wanted the honey. That was a precious substance. David is saying, watch, that the scriptures, the words of God, are more abundant to life, more satisfying to life than honey is to the taste buds. Why? Verse 11, by them your servant is warned. There's a negative aspect to them. They warn us. They put guardrails up and say, don't go there. Don't think that. Don't say that. Don't follow that person. By them, your servant is warned. There's safety in them. And by keeping them, there is great reward. That's the positive. Is that those who keep them, those who know the word, those who pursue the word, there is reward There is life. And so the word of God provides what creation can never give us. Warning, reward, direction, promise. So there is value to creation. We love the world that God has created. We praise him for it. We celebrate it. But many in our culture, stop right there. How many times have I heard someone say to me, the mountains are my cathedral? Meaning, that's where I go to worship. Now, I'm just saying, you can't worship God in the mountains. But what they say or saying by that is, I don't need God. The mountains are sufficient for me. The mountains are sufficient to help me transcend life and help me understand life. No, they're not. No, they're not. Neither is any other part of creation. This psalm really is not about creation because creation's just the stage, just like the heavens are the stage for the sun. This psalm is about the scriptures, is about the word of direction and promise. Such glory causes a response from David because it sheds light on him It sheds light on him. And so lastly, we see the glory of deliverance. The glory of deliverance. There is a glory of the son. There is a glory of his word. And God reveals himself in the glory of deliverance. Verse 11, or I'm sorry, verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Who can discern his errors? That is, who can discern his own errors? Who can look into his or her own heart and really understand all of his own motives, all of his own thoughts? Who can explore all of the deep, dark corners of his own soul? 
and comprehended. David is struck by the reality that he can never get to the bottom of his own heart. That if he is left to himself, he cannot illuminate all the dark corners of his heart. And that there will be sinful desires and motives lurking. These are what he calls hidden faults. These are things that he thinks and does and feels and reacts to in his mind, maybe in his behavior, that he never connects as something transgressing God's word, as something that displeases the Lord, as something that makes him unclean. But he knows they're there because he at least knows enough to know that he can't know it all that he can't really see and understand even the depths of his own heart, but he knows that God sees them. God sees them all. The one who has set the sun in the heavens, the one who has spoken the perfect law, he sees all, he knows all, and he judges all. And so you see, David moves from the glory of the Son to the glory of the Word to an understanding of God's relationship with every person. You could say that, it is, that David is progressing through what we can know. We can know God's glory. We can know he's powerful than he exists because the sun and the heavens scream it at us. We can know God's character and his person and his will and right from wrong and wisdom from folly when we look into the glory of his word. But David is saying that it is necessary that when we look at that word, that word will shine a light back into us and we can actually know ourselves and understand what is there. And what will the response be when the word shines its light into our own hearts? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. I know there's stuff in my life that I don't even know is there. But you see it. You know it. Declare me innocent. This is a a prayer for deliverance. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. And then he cries out, keep me back, right? Keep me back from presumptuous sins. Presumptuous sins are sins of will. There are things that are gonna be hidden, things I don't even know about in my heart and in my life. Declare me innocent of those. I can't appeal to anything else other than you declaring me innocent because I can't even know them. But Lord, also keep me from presumptuous sins, the kinds of sins that say, I know this is wrong, but I'm going to presume on God's grace and his forgiveness, and I'm going to do it anyway. That's presumptuous sins. And David is crying out for deliverance that those presumptuous sins will not master him. Deliver me from them. Keep me back from them. Because he knows his own weakness. He knows his vulnerability to rebellion and even self-deceit, which is the most dangerous. 
but he wants to be blameless. He wants to please the Lord. He wants to be acceptable. And that's why he ends with this plea, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. David is not using words as something external and meditation as something internal. He's using them together as a way of saying, let everything that I say, because in the Psalms and Proverbs and wisdom literature, what we say directs our lives as much as expresses the heart. It determines the course and the path for our lives. And David is saying, let the words of my mouth and let the meditations of my heart, the things I chew on, the things I stew over, the things that are running through my mind when I go to sleep at night and when I wake up in the morning, let those be things that are acceptable to you. Everything about me, every way I relate with people, every way I set the course for my own life with my words and everything that I think and feel and chew on, let them be acceptable in your sight. And how does he cry out? How does he address the Lord? My rock and my redeemer. There's his hope. There's his confidence. The Lord is our rock. It means he is the foundation for all of life. To build life on him is secure and safe. There's security and safety there. And my redeemer, the one who is my loyal protector, that's what he's talking about. The term here in this context is something like a kinsman redeemer, somebody who comes and and saves and delivers with love and provision. You are my rock. I build my life on you, and you are my redeemer. You are my loyal, my loyal savior my loyal defender and protector. I cry out to you on that basis. Why such a response? Why such a response? Because the glory of the word is inescapable. Now think again about the structure of the psalm. The heavens declare the glory of God In verse 4, their voice goes out through all the earth, their words to the end of the world. What about the sun? The sun is like a champion, a mighty man who runs its course. One end of the heavens, it begins its circuit, and it goes all the way to the end of them. Nothing is hidden from its heat so also the sacred book reveals the true condition of the human race and the workings of every human heart. Nothing and no one is hidden from its heat. That's the message of the psalm. Isn't this what the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter four, verse 12? And 13, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, 
piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God is, we do not sit in judgment on the word of God. It sits in judgment on us. It reveals, it judges the motives and intentions of the heart. It discerns our thoughts. Verse 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight. Here we go, Psalm 19. Writer of Hebrews is thinking Psalm 19 also. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's what David is saying in Psalm 19. That's what he's experiencing as he looks at the perfect law of the Lord. He knows that his soul is exposed and naked before God. And that's what causes him to cry out. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Declare me innocent from hidden faults and keep me, hold me, restrain me from presumptuous sins because you are the God who sees all. You are the Lord before whom I am laid out naked and exposed for you to see. Because you see, as God reveals himself, he really reveals us. That light sheds on us. This is no ordinary book. Amen.